Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, gang. Mike, Mark, and Barry with you. And we're in the manager's office today. And, Mark, we've got baseball's competitive gentleman joining us, Buddy Black of the Colorado Rockies. And you know what's interesting, Mike, about Buddy Black? He's done it all. He's been in the front office. He's done it as a player. He's been on the main stage as a player. But now he is in his second opportunity as a manager. And I can't wait. I love talking with Buddy Black. We're going to bring you to the beginning of your big league life. You're drafted by Seattle in 1979. You're from the Pacific Northwest, so we know that was a big deal. And you're drafted after your senior year in college. But a few short years later, in September of 1981, you get your first taste of life in the big leagues. Buddy, if you would, share with us the details of the moment that you got the call. I called my parents, uh, who in turn called my sister. you know, I called a couple buddies, uh, a couple guys that I grew up with in the Northwest. And it was sort of cool, like you mentioned earlier, Mike, that, uh, you know, being growing up in the Northwest and being drafted by Seattle and then getting to the big leagues as a Mariner was, was pretty cool. And at that time, if you remember, the Mariners became a franchise in 77. So it was, you know, they were, they were a young organization. They were a young franchise. So it was all a whirlwind, you know, those first four or five days. Buddy, you were drafted in 79. You debuted with Seattle in 81. It was a striking, a really bad time for baseball, but kind of fortuitous for you as it gets you to Kansas City where you'd flourish. What do you remember about that chaotic season? You know, I was in the bullpen in double A, and by the, by the time the summer came, I was in the rotation. Uh, by that time, the major leaguers were on strike, and uh, there was a three-game stretch uh, where I struck out 13, I struck out 13, 12, and 12 uh, hitters in, uh, in consecutive games. And there was a scout for the Royals by the name of Tom Ferrick, an old-time scout who was a major league scout who was John Scherholz's right-hand man. You know, John leaned on Tom a lot for player evaluation advice. And John was a young John was a young executive with the Royals, uh, his first year as a general manager. So as it turned out, uh, Tom saw the first game that I punched out 13, followed me to Bristol, Connecticut. I punched out 13 again, followed me to Waterbury. I punched out 12. I had three really good games in a row. And, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't at big league ballparks because obviously the, the big leaguers were on strike. So Jotted it down, saw me pitch, you know, a little left-handed pitcher from uh, for the Lynn Sailors. And sure enough, that winter, uh, there was a trade uh, with the Royals and the, and the Mariners. The, you know, the Mariners acquired Manny Castillo, who was a third baseman in Omaha, who was behind George Brett. And George wasn't going anywhere. And Manny led the American Association in hitting a couple different years. And good little player, switch hitter but he was stuck behind George. So they, they made a trade for a player to name later. We got into spring training of 82 and I'm in Tempe with the Mariners at Tempe Diablo stadium, where we all know the Mariners were training there at that point. And in uh, you know, the middle of the spring, I got a call from Danny O'Brien, our general manager, and uh, told me there was a trade uh, with the Royals uh, that I was going to, I was going to be headed to Fort Myers. 
and that's how I got to, and that's how I got to, uh, that's how I got to Kansas City, where I was a player to be named later. And Tom Ferrick sort of urged Sherholtz, uh, you know, to to try to go get me out of the Mariner organization. And uh, and John tells a story that that was the first trade he ever made. You go to the Royals. It's a very successful team. It's a talented team. But then you start getting some starts in the big leagues. And really fast forward into that opportunity where it's a personal goal, but you want to get that first win. Talk to us about that first win, maybe the first strikeout, your appearance in a Royals uniform. You know, I, I, you know I've been with the team for you know, a few weeks. Uh, I pitched a couple times out of the pen. But, you know, the first start is sort of special. And uh, uh, the results were awful. I think I gave up four runs in the first inning. Uh, I remember Andre Thornton, uh, who continued to be a, a thorn in my side, per se, uh, moving forward, uh, you know, hit a double in the first. I gave up a bunch of hits in the first inning, four runs. But it was a bad, it was a, it was a you know, it was a, it was a bad outing for your first start. But, you know, what I, what I remember, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, my years in Kansas City for, and I scuffled a little bit, the, you know, the first, you know, the first year, 82, 83, I was a little bit better, but, you know, my manager, Dick Hauser, uh, boy, did he have a lot of faith in me. Uh, he really believed in me. And, and that went such a long way uh, for my career. I mean, uh, you know, he was so impactful and, and, you know, and we've talked about how many guys that are 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 impactful for you as as a young player. Uh, George Brett and Jamie Quirk were probably the two guys that uh, you know were probably as instrumental as teammates about how I was raised in the game than anybody that uh, you know I went on to be teammates with. Um, those guys were awesome, along with Dick as my first manager. Buddy, when you think of first two, I think there's an interesting aspect that really gets minimized at times from players. But can you remember back, and is there any other story of your first baseball card? Because uh, really, as a kid, even if you don't collect them, I think it's an aspect that when you get to the big leagues, it's really cool. It's almost, hey, hey, I made it here. Do you remember that moment when you first saw your baseball card? Uh. You know, I, I don't I don't quite remember it, but uh, you know, it, it made me reflect on how far I'd come. You know, growing up in the Northwest, uh, you know, in the late '60s and early '70s, you know, there was there was real there was no baseball. I mean, you were a, you were far away from any big league city. San Francisco was, you know, the you know the nearest city, and I remember I can faint I could faintly get you know, games on the radio, uh, as a young kid. Uh, so I, I became a giant fan growing up and, you know, my father was a giant fan and I was born in San Mateo, but raised in Washington. But, uh, but I, I do remember, you know, looking at my, my first big league card and saying, wow, you know, this is pretty cool. I can't remember the exact moment, but you know how it is. You know how it is in spring training, where you you, you go through you know you go through the all the photographers and and I you know I didn't know what all that meant. You know this was all new to me. I was just sort of you know going with the flow of uh, 
you know, of what I was, you know, being, you know, I just did what everybody told me to do. But, you know, when I first saw that card, it was, it was pretty cool. Buddy, 1984, you have probably your best season statistically. You're 17 and 12, ERA of 312. Perhaps more than that, you make your first postseason appearance against Detroit in the American League Championship Series. That's a whole different type of beginning. What's it feel like compared yeah. to the regular season when you're out there with all the marbles on the table? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that is, you know, a, you know, your body just feels different. Uh, you know, I think there's a gradual, you know, your body sort of becomes accustomed uh, over time and you, be, you, you get conditioned to all these levels of, of, of uh, you know, of, of talent as you grow. Like, you know, you go from, you know, go from high, you go from Little League to Babe Ruth or American Legion or uh, Senior Babe Ruth, whatever the, wherever you are and part of the country and you're playing. So you sort of become conditioned as you get older, you know, from high school to college, college to the minor leagues, minor leagues to the big leagues. Uh, you know, you, you sort of become used to that just from experience. But that, you know, that first playoff game was, was, was noticeably different for sure. And even a year later, uh, we made the playoffs again. And even though uh, we had been in the playoffs in 84, you know, my first World Series start was – was was different than any other playoff game I started. But, you know, that first one against the Tigers, I was, you know, I was ready. I was confident. But, you know, my body felt different. It was, uh, you know, I was I was sort of rested going into that start, so my arm felt great. Uh, you know, I was I was excited to pitch. Uh, you know, all those all those feelings I wanted to be there on that, you know, on that stage. Uh, and we, you know, we had a, we had a solid, we had a good team. We were, you know, sort of young on the mound with, you know, Saberhagen and Gubazaw and Lee Branton, Danny Jackson. We we're all sort of young and the Tigers were awesome. I mean, what a great team that was. And, and they hit me hard, but I, I mean, I was super pumped, uh, you know, to pitch. I was excited, but there's nothing like pitching in the playoff game when you know that, uh, you know, nobody else is playing. You're the only game. Uh, that's on television. It's being watched by millions across the country. Uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty special feeling, buddy. When you go into those playoffs, you win your first World Series as a player. And being a baseball fan back then, and being a young guy watching that World Series, the one guy that sticks out is Brett Saberhagen. And the reason why I say that is that he's 21 years old, and he looked like. He was just a dominating force. Speak to that if you could, because you were 28 at that time and a veteran with Charlie Liebrandt on that staff. And then you see a 21-year-old, Brett Saberhagen, doing his thing on the big stage. Well, we saw, you know, the year before in 84 when he came up, uh, you know, I think he made his debut at 19 uh, and turned 20. And then in 85, he was 21. But you could see the, uh, you know, the, you know, I don't know. If, if, you know, I don't know whether I think poison. I don't know whether poison is the right word, but I mean, he never showed his age. I mean, he was confident. Uh, you know, in his ability, uh, he was loose. I think that's the that's the thing that's maintained with Saves over the years is that you know, in competition, he's always loose. He never tightens up, 
and uh, he's, he's got a joyful spirit to him, you know, even today, at, uh, and he's in his 50s. But, uh, you know, back then he was, he was a kid, but, you know, he had no nerves at all. I mean, it was, it was impressive to, to see him come up in 84 and contribute uh, to us making the playoffs and winning our division. And then in 85, you know, you know, taking over the World Series with, with two wins, you know, two complete games, uh, you know, a shutout in game seven. Uh, I mean, so impressive. Buddy, you said 1985 is clearly your most gratifying year as a player as you win that World Series against St. Louis. Take us to the time when you received the World Series ring, because I don't think anybody outside of baseball players appreciates and truly understands the grind that goes into just playing a big league season, never mind making the postseason. Nonetheless, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you win the World Series, you get the ring in your hand. Buddy Black's first thoughts. Yeah, you know, we, you know it's coming, right? You know it's uh, – you have to wait a little bit because you have to wait until, you know, the 86 season, and it's usually done at, the, you know, your home opener. Uh and if I recall, ours were given to us on the field on the first baseline at Royal Stadium, where uh, our owner uh, came and handed us each the ring as he went down the line from from home plate, you know, down the down the line towards first and a little bit beyond, and that's how we got our rings. Uh, but the anticipation of that, you know, the, in the the days prior, is pretty cool. Uh, you really you don't see the rings. You, you hear you see you know maybe some renderings of what they look like, but until you get it and you open up that box and you look at it, uh, you know it's it's awesome, man. And there's no better feeling. And and uh, I still have it, obviously today. You know it's you know it's it's uh, you know back in uh, you know back in my bedroom in a, a little vault that uh, that we keep with some valuables. And, uh, you know, I break it out and I, when I, when I put it on, it's, it's, you know, it's a special time for me to wear it because it symbolizes, uh, to what you guys said. I mean, the journey of the season and that's the, the beauty I think of, of, you know, a world series ring or a championship is the, is the journey and the path to get it and the, and the ups and downs, the, the, you know, the joys, the heartbreaks, the smiles, the, uh, you know, the scuffles, the, the laughter that, that go into a season. And when it ends in a championship, uh, you know, there's no better feeling. And I'm telling you, that feeling lasts. It, it doesn't go away. And, uh, and when I see guys from that team, and, you know, we don't get together often, but we'll cross paths in, in certain walks of life. And there's just a common bond that we have. And, uh, and and to be part of that bond, it's it's what we do as athletes and what we strive for. Because there's because once you feel that, you want to you want to do it again. And, you have 15 seasons as a player, and seven of them in Kansas City, and you get a chance to feel it again down the road, but from a different perspective. Uh, and that's as a pitching coach with the Angels in 2002. But just a tick before then. After what had been a remarkable playing career, you finish up with the Cleveland Indians and you move to the front office. That's another beginning for you, another chapter in Buddy's life. Uh, Buddy, what was it about 
that last run in Cleveland that told you you might be a good fit for life in baseball beyond being a player? Well, you know, my last couple of years as a player, uh, you know, with, with the Giants and uh, my last year as a player with the Indians, uh, you know, people in the game, you know, started uh, to pull me aside and, and ask me, what are you going to do when, you know, when you're done? And, you know, at that time, I, I didn't really have an answer. Uh, you know, I told them that I wanted to stay in the game in some capacity. So, uh, as we know, there's the, there's the broadcasting angle, uh, there's the executive angle, uh, and there's the, the uniform angle. And, uh, you know, once I started getting asked those questions, I, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And even when I re- retired as a player in 95, I wasn't quite sure because I, you know, I had, res- I had interest and I, and I had respect for all three of those directions. Uh, and the Indians gave me a great opportunity to, uh, to explore the executive side and the coaching side uh, in that five-year period from 95 to, you know, up till 2000. Uh, so I owe a great deal of uh, gratitude to, to John Hart, Dan O'Dowd, and Mark Shapiro, who were leading the Indians at that time, uh, you know, to give me direction and give me advice and, you know, sort of mentor me a little bit in, 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 those, in those phases of baseball. I coached in 98 in Buffalo as a pitching coach and, you know, I was uh, doing some executive work uh, beyond that. But, you know, that set me up for, you know, by the time I got uh, interviewed in Anaheim to, to become an angel. But, you know, those guys were so instrumental in my, in my post-career development. Buddy, when you are involved with that, was it uh, an indication immediately that you wanted to be on the field? You touched on being in a uniform again, but that managing aspirations – uh, did it have that feel for you immediately, or was that a progression that you had to to kind of answer yourself? Yeah, that was progression again. I, I knew that, uh, you know, after, you know, living a little bit of executive life and, and being around general managers, assistant general managers, farm directors, then also being in training and, and talking to players and managers and coaches, I felt I was best suited probably at that point to be in uniform. So, uh, and I, that's where I felt right. I felt right being in uniform. So, uh, when I got to the Angels, uh, it felt right to be in uniform, working with the pitchers, being a part of a coaching staff, uh, working with Mike Sosha, Ron Renneke, Mickey Hatcher, Joe Madden, Alfredo Griffin. Uh, Bill Stoneman was our general manager, who was, who was great. Uh, and the, and the managerial thing just sort of developed over time. It's not unlike what happened uh, post-playing career where, uh, you know, a number of people, again, came to me and said, hey, buddy, have you ever thought about managing? And I really hadn't until when people started asking me. And, uh, and, and people that I respect in the game, uh, players, uh, general managers, broadcasters, you know, you know, really encouraged me to give it some thought. And, uh, you know, there were some overtures early, uh, my early days in, in Anaheim, but I was, you know, I was happy where I was, happy what I was doing. Uh, but as time went on, you know, that sort of momentum to manage and, and that challenge uh, sort of jumped to the forefront for me. And, uh, and that's when I decided that, 
you know, to go for it, you know, after the 06 season to, to throw my hat in the ring and there were some job openings. And uh, I thought that, you know, now's the time to, you know, go for it. You know, I felt ready. You know, I'd coached, I'd, I'd done some stuff in the front office. I felt as though I was, you know, well-rounded enough in, in where I was uh, career-wise and age-wise that, hey, man, it's, you know, now's the time. And I was fortunate enough to be hired by the Padres. Well, buddy, then you get that first opportunity. And I think this is really a, a cool aspect of getting that first chance to manage. And it's with the San Diego Padres in 2007. Do you remember the first game and how you felt emotionally going into that? I remember, yes, like yesterday. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I think anytime you do something for the first time, I mean, there's there's a little bit of anxious moments and there's some and there's some nerves. They were cut a little bit by, to be honest, I was I was more nervous, uh, you know, the first day of spring training when you got to dress the team. That's you know that was. <laughs> Well, that was that was a that was a big one for me. Uh, you know, I'm I'm following in a, a, a Hall of Fame manager's footsteps uh, in Bruce Bochy. Uh, you know, we had a veteran team in '07. We had a good team. Uh, so that first day was, uh, you know, it was, I was excited about, but I, I was nervous. Uh, but got through that and got through the spring, but. You know, our first game, you know, that's, that's different. You know, going to home plate, uh, you know, with the lineup card, and there was Bruce on the other side with the Giants. Uh, you know, it was sort of surreal to think that now, you know, where, where my career was. And I remember during the National Anthem, you know, we were on the, on the lines there. And, and I thought for a moment how, you know, here I, here I am now as a, as a manager. I've been a coach. I've been a player. Uh, you know, to, you know, now to manage, try to help the Padres win this game that was going to happen in a few minutes was, was special stuff. And, and sure enough, we did. I mean, you know, we won the game. It was a great game for the Padres. PV pitched uh, six scoreless innings. Clay Meredith pitched a scoreless seventh. Uh, Heath Bell uh, pitched two scoreless innings, uh, the eighth and ninth, and we won seven to nothing. Uh yeah, I, I, it was it was a great day. It was an afternoon game. Uh, I remember we went out to dinner as a family. Uh, I, I had a lot of relatives up there and a couple of friends. We had a big we had a big meal across the street from the team hotel at Morton's. You guys are familiar with that, of course. <laughs> from uh, you know, right there at uh, Union Square, and, uh, and a, <clears throat> a little side story. A bottle of champagne came over, and. Uh, Waiter brought it over and said, "Hey, this is a this is a gift for you to enjoy uh, from that table over there." And I looked over a couple tables over, and I see four men over there. And I'm looking a little closer, and I go, "Damn, those are the umpires!" It was the umpiring <laughs> crew of that game uh, that sent over a bottle of champagne. So I thought that was pretty cool. Hey, buddy, you had uh, <laughs> so many great milestones that I'm thinking about. You got a World Series ring as a player in 85, the 0-2 ring with the Angels. You become a manager. You're manager of the year in 2010. But I want to turn your attention to the here and now because you're 102 wins short of 1,000 career wins as a big league manager. When you reach that milestone, give us some perspective of the significance. Well, I don't know. It, 
And again, I think that, you know, even going back, you know, to, you know, I, I know that I'm, I've always been a, uh, I've always been a byproduct of those who've been around me. You know, I was, I was never, uh, you know, the best player on my little league team. I was never the best player on my high school team, uh, my college team. I mean, down the line, I've been, I've been aided by, you know, a lot of people who've been by my side, whether teammates, coaches, uh, you know, then you get into pro ball executives, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's so many people that go into, to making a career. And obviously as a player, uh, you know, you determine your own fate by your performance, right? I mean, I, I tell that to players all the time. I mean, I mean, you got to perform, you have to play well to, to, to continue. Uh, but, but looking back at, at that, at that potential number, and I, I didn't even realize that, Mike, but, uh, you know, I'm going to, and, and, you know, pe- you know, people, you know, all the, not all the time, but, you know, they'll say, hey, buddy, that was your, you know, your 500th win or your 700th win or, you know, milestones or, you know, even the date that, you know, every year when uh, September 24th, Reggie Jackson's 500th home run, they bring that day up because I, you know, you know, gave up Reggie's 500. But, and, you know, I've just been so lucky, guys, to, you know, to do this for a long time. And, and, uh, you know, when you get into, when you get into coaching, uh, you know, it's, you know, the players, uh, you know, are so important and, uh, you know, our interaction and those guys let me teach. And even as a manager, you know, there's a teaching component and, and the, and the, and all the, and all the factions of a major league clubhouse and especially this day and age and everything you have to take care of as a manager. Uh, you know, people got to, you know, people got to be on board and, and I've been lucky that I've had good people around me to, to help me through this. And it's been, uh, it's been one where I've, you know, just felt the, you know, very fortunate and very grateful to be surrounded by great people. Buddy, so many people that describe you have a, a feeling and a sense of what the grind really was. And you, you alluded to as a player, as a manager, and I think it's depicted by one of your closest friends since, since fifth grade. His name is Kirk Rowland. And he said, you're a quiet killer. And why I say that is that being around you, you do it with a smile on your face. And it's the in- internal fortitude of what you've developed, not only as a player, but as a manager. But I think it's a cool aspect to touch on because that's how you're described. That's how you feel and that's what you look, but it's also the professionalism that you have done throughout your career. And where does that come from? Because I think it's an aspect that a lot of people would love to have. Well, I don't know. I just, I just know when I was, you know, when I was growing up, uh, you know, I was, I was fortunate to be around, uh, you know, a group of buddies, you know, my peer group. And I think, you know, your peer group is so instrumental and, uh, you know, laying the foundation of who you are and, uh, you know, uh, you know, competing in, in anything was sort of at the, uh, the basis of what we did as kids, uh, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade into junior high and then into high school. You know, I, I, always, I, I always sort of had a competitive streak in me, man. I, I, I like to win. Uh, 
and I competed hard. And my, you know, my friends compete hard. You know, there are times, and even though they're best friends, man, we would we would go at it. You know, like after you know the last point of a basketball game, or uh, you know the you know playing football in the mud, and somebody got a little uh, angry. I mean, we'd go to blows with each other. But you know, then we end up hugging and fighting. I mean, hugging and you know, uh, you know, being buddies again. But you know, I think that competitiveness started when I was young, and 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 also, you know, again, I was a little bit undersized as a as a as a young kid, high school, college. You know, I didn't really physically mature until I got really out of San Diego State and got my full strength. So I was always a little bit behind physically, and that made me, you know, a little bit, I think, edgier. Uh, uh, per se, and I think this stayed with me. But and as I as I grew older, uh, you know, I always had a tremendous amount of respect for for competition. Right? I think that you know all of us always respected who I was going up against, and uh, and you know, just sort of how I was sort of how I was built and how I was raised. But again, I think it was just a it was a product of who I was around as a, as a kid. And obviously my parents shaped a lot of that too, as far as, you know, how to, how to compete the right way and, you know, how to handle winning and how to handle losing all those things that you learn as a kid and good coaches and, and good teachers, you know, growing up and, you know, that never really stopped, you know, that, that, that doesn't really stop. And even now, you know, conversations with other managers and, 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 and others, uh, you know, who are older than me, you know, talking about, you know, wins and losses and competitiveness and, and how to be a pro and, and how to handle certain things have always been hard conversations and good conversations that I've, I've listened to and had, which I think has benefited. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.